Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 90 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week. Last week, I opened for Sam Bush. Holy cow. Um, I can't even, again, I can't really even put into words what, what a fantastic day that was. And I can't begin to put into words how fantastic Sam is. What a great guy. We sat around and talked about Haas and, you know, Haas is right there in my hands. And, and, um, it was amazing, man. And he's just so gracious. You know, we were in, we had like little separate green rooms and he came out to talk to the band before we started. And he just wanted to make sure he met everybody. And it was just, he was so cool. Uh, and he's so nice. Like he, it's so easy to talk to him and he's so interesting. I'm getting a text. My phone's blowing up or in the green room. And it's the sound guy going, where are you guys? You're on in five minutes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're in here talking to Sam. So uh, thank you again to uh, to Sam Bush and um, and Ear for Music, Rob Lamble here in Charleston, South Carolina. It was great. Uh, go see Sam. He's just crushing it. The band is fantastic. Wes Corbett, the new banjo player. Whew. Unbelievable. A reminder, it's the first Friday again this month, which means it's Bandcamp Friday, where Bandcamp waives all their fees for the musicians. Grant Gordy had a killer post about how buying a, an album from an artist on Bandcamp, especially this Friday, that money that goes to the artist is the equivalent of listening to one of their songs nonstop for three years on Spotify. So it makes a huge difference to the artist, especially when they waive these fees. So Bandcamp Friday, again, if you uh, want to check out a list of people who've been on the podcast, you can just go right to mandolinsbeer.com or my Instagram, and I've got links right to a Bandcap page with all of the artists who have appeared on here. So be sure to do that. Let's do the ads here real quick, Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com has the greatest lineup of mandolin instructors out there. It's got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning. doesn't matter if you're a beginning mandolin player or if you're working on those chord melody jazz tunes from Aaron or you want to learn some theory with Chad Manning, you can get it all at Peghead Nation. And the courses have high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And it grows every month. Tons of songs. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MandolinBeer at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at NorthfieldMandolins.com. Download their app at MandoSummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Let's get into the interview with Alex Hargreaves, everybody. Have a great week. Cheers. Now it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Alex Hargraves. Alex, how's it going? It's going great. How about you? Doing good, man. I am so excited nice. to have you on this podcast. You are on all sorts of albums that I absolutely love. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, from Grant Gordy's first album, The Brotet, um, the, the Big Trio. Is that what it was called? Mike, Mike Marshall's Big Trio? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you're just all over all this stuff. And so it's a real, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I've actually seen you live a few times with Sarah Droz. So, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So it's cool to talk to you, man. What's, what's been going on? Yeah. Man. Well, I've, uh, been back in Brooklyn now for a few months. I, uh, I've, I've lived in New York most, uh, mostly for the last five years. Um, but when the pandemic hit, I ended up going out to Oregon for a while, which was, was really nice, really nice kind of escape from all the craziness here. And then uh, I spent some time in Nashville for a few months and then made my way back to New York. So uh, it feels good to be back here. The, you know, the weather's getting nice again. <laughs> a lot of a lot of folks are coming back to town. Um, so I'm excited to be back. Well, that's great. You've got this brand new album out with Joe Walsh and Grant Gordy and Greg Garrison that is just blowing my mind. 
And oh, so thanks. Congratulations on that, first of all. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, I, I asked the other guys, but I'd love to get your feedback on how this project came together. Yeah, well, it kind of ha- started with um, all of us hanging and playing at the Sore Fingers Music Camp in England, um, which is a, a bluegrass workshop that's been going on for years now. And, um, you know, we've all we've all known each other for quite a while and played together in different configurations and Grant I've known for a, a very long time. Um, but this was, the, I think, the first time that we played together um, in that particular combination. And it was just a, uh, you know, one of the, they have like showcases every night at, at that camp. It's a week-long camp. And um, and I think it was, it might have been the first, the first night of camp, actually, um, they asked me to put together a band. So I, I asked those guys and we kind of threw together a last-minute set and the chemistry just felt really great and we had a lot of fun and then it just kind of uh i think it might have been greg who initiated the idea originally but he was like well man we should just uh go into the studio at some point and and document the chemistry so that's kind of um that's kind of how i see this project is just uh you know we probably spent maybe a day of rehearsals before going in and then after that it was just kind of you know wanting to document how we play together and then you you, you uh, contributed a tune to that. Rattlesnake Pass is yours. that in the liner notes it says originally written for a composer's therapy club of sorts i would love to hear about that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so that was a back when uh my friends dominic leslie and jeff picker both still lived in new york um we had all had conversations reoccurring conversations about how we struggle with composing for a variety of reasons and um kind of thought it would be uh, a good good idea to just have a semi-regular meeting where we basically um, bring each bring a tune into the table and and teach each other and then just record you know a very low pressure demo just on like you know I think Jeff might have had some microphones we used but it was it wasn't for anything other than just like working on composing and kind of getting more comfortable with that process and you know holding each other accountable to actually finish a tune (laughs) so you know nothing like uh you know friends who you respect holding you accountable to actually uh, light a fire under your (laughs) get something done so that was that was a really we had a, a maybe three or four sessions overall and um got a few tunes out of it and that was when i was trying to think of something to bring to the table for this album um that that one came to mind just kind of given who was who is in the band and um, what, what could maybe um, be a nice contrast in the, on the, on the record. Yeah, that's great. A great tune as well, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you, uh, how did you find yourself playing fiddle, man? Well, uh, I got my first fiddle when I was about three years old. Um, and my, I think, uh, my understanding of what happened was my parents just, you know, wanted wanted uh, music to be a part of my upbringing and my education, and and they didn't have any uh, sort of agenda for me being a professional musician, but they just wanted me to have that experience. They're both music lovers and musicians themselves, and into a lot of different styles of music. So um, I just grew up hearing a lot of different types of music, and uh, yeah, I got my first fiddle when I was three and started taking lessons when i was four um with the uh with this doing the suzuki method which is a, a method of teaching um classical violin that kind of starts off emphasizing ear training and learning by ear before reading music oh cool and uh and around the same time i started taking fiddle lessons too and learning basic fiddle tunes stuff like that so four years old the ripe old age of four yeah <laughs> <laughs> when did you determine like that was like 
oh man, this is like, well, A, you're really good. I mean, <laughs> and that, 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 like, oh, I could make a living doing that. Yeah, I guess, well, uh, honestly, a big part of it for me was um, as I got older, I mean, I always loved music and always loved playing music and listening to it, but it was, you know, I think around the time I started meeting other musicians, my in my similar age group that were playing um, the same kind of music. And that was a, a really big moment for me. I met, we were talking about Jake Jolliffe earlier and I, I met him when I was probably about 10 or so. At, um, I think it was the Darrington bluegrass festival in, in Washington. And then uh, shortly after that, I started going to um, Mark O'Connor's fiddle camp. And I went to the mandolin symposium that, um, David Grisman and Mike Marshall were putting on. And through those, I met so many people who just really inspired me to keep playing. You know, at, at that age, it's, I think it's really important that you can be around other folks your same age who are interested in that kind of music. Cause up until that point, I'd mostly been playing with, you know, older musicians and going to jams with my dad and, and all that was really inspiring. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that, but I think it wasn't until I met more young, like younger musicians that I felt really inspired to kind of pursue it in a more meaningful way. Um, and, and then kind of starting around high school, I guess I started getting more gigs and maybe that was when I thought, well, maybe I can actually do this for, for a living. <laughs> Were you um, always <laughs> playing like bluegrassy stuff? Kind of. I, I actually first started playing more of uh, like the kind of Texas style of fiddling. Oh, neat. Um, which kind of, you know, is um, parallel to the, the contest fiddle world. Um, I, I see them as kind of different. They're obviously related and the, the fiddle contests are a big part of the tradition in Texas style. But um, I, I always like calling it Texas style rather than contest style because to me the contest part of it is, is not what makes that music interesting. Um, but it's a, re a really cool style of, of fiddle playing that I still love listening to and drawing inspiration from. Um, and I think that was, so that was what I first got into. And along with that, getting into like Western swing, Texas swing, Bob Wills type stuff. Um, Johnny, Johnny Gimble was one of my first fiddle heroes. And still is, and he's just to me a real master improviser on the fiddle. Um, and I think that was definitely kind of a gateway for me getting into other styles of like improvised music. But then I think uh, bluegrass was came up maybe a little later. Um, but yeah, it was all it was definitely started more on the fiddle side of things. And then as I got older, I got more interested in jazz and other other types of stuff like that. Yeah, I um I went through a big Django Reinhardt uh, phase um, years and years nice. ago, and I was just doing like the deep YouTube dive. And um, there's a like like a Django camp video or something, and I'm pretty sure it's you and Jake and just a bunch of other players outside, like probably between classes or something like that, just tearing oh, okay. a song up. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, man! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might actually be. That might have been from uh, this festival in France, this mandolin festival, actually. Uh, Mandolins de Lunel. Have you heard of that one? No. It's, a, it's a, I don't even know if it still happens, but um, it used to be that it was this really cool festival that was, you know, centered around the mandolin and brought like Hamilton de Alondo would be there. sorts of mandolin players from around the world which was really cool but jake and i um did a, a duo set there one year and i think that might be where that video is from but 
Yeah, there's a great video out there, by the way. You and I were talking about it um, earlier, but if I'll put a link to it on my website as well. But there's a great video of you guys from years and years ago playing a um, at a music store as a duo. And it, I mean, there's just it's just like such such great stuff. And um, just like two years ago, I guess it was like 2019, and somebody called out like "Cold Duck Time." And I'm like, what? I'm like, wow, I, nobody's ever called this song out ever. And the only reason why I knew it as well is because you guys do it on that video. I downloaded nice. that video to my computer and then put it on my phone so I could listen to it like when I was like running or stuff like that. Oh, cool, man. <laughs> yeah, and so I was, <laughs> that's a cool tune, man. And I was just like, these guys are well-rounded. <laughs> yeah, I think I actually first learned that tune from uh, my good buddy Mike Barnett. Um, when I, and actually, it would, I, met, I first met him at Mark O'Connor's camp when I was, you know, probably about 13 or 14. And I think that might have been one of the first tunes we jammed on together. <laughs> oh, no He, he showed that one to me. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So um, you you went to Berkeley? I did. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, again, was that like in the plans the whole time or was it just something that as you were in high school just suddenly were like interested in doing? I think it was maybe kind of gradually it became more and more of interest to me. I'd, not Berkeley in particular, but just wanting to, you know, study primarily jazz in school. Um, I think I, I was kind of realizing more and more that for that language and that style of music, it's really important as a violin player to be around other instruments that are more kind of a part of that, the lineage and the language of, of jazz. So um, I kind of wanted to find a program that I could immerse myself in and not be, not have it be so string centric, I guess. Cause I, you know, I grew up with a lot of amazing educational experiences at camps and I'm very grateful for all the, teachers I've had over the years, but I kind of wanted something a little different, um, in my college experience. So it ended up, ended up choosing Berkeley and got to be a part of a really cool program there with some amazing teachers. Yeah, it was a great experience. I bet. What was, uh, what was your audition like? Um, well, let's see, I, I did two different auditions cause one of them was just to get into Berkeley college of music. Um, that one, I don't remember as clearly, but then around the same time, I also auditioned to get into this program called the global jazz Institute. Um, and, and that was actually kind of why I ended up deciding to go to Berkeley was because I got into this program within the college. Um, and that was directed by this pianist named Danilo Perez, who's a really incredible musician and educator and composer. And, um, I was definitely very nervous for that audition because <laughs> I, I hadn't done a lot of playing in jazz ensembles, really, even though I'd been practicing that music a lot. I hadn't had a lot of experience playing, you know, again, like in a less string centric format it was with like drums and bass and horns and everything. So there was a lot of there was some sight reading and, you know, trying to learn rhythms by ear. And I don't particularly remember feeling the best about <laughs> how it went, but I, I still, I still got into the program. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Oh, that's great. What kind of like jazz stuff were you listening to as you were, as you were prepping for stuff like that or that you were really interested in? Oh man. I mean, all, all kinds of stuff really. But I think I remember when I, I started hanging with this, this great drummer um, in Corvallis, Oregon, where I grew up, um, this guy named Dave stores, who is just a really, really creative, um, person and very kind of unorthodox approach in terms of how he thinks of, of music. And around the time I started hanging and playing with him was, I started, it really opened up my ears to listening to a lot of jazz from like the mid sixties. Um, so like, especially like that, that era of Miles Davis and the, the second quintet that he had then. Um, and like the Coltrane quartet in like the mid, mid sixties, that kind of aesthetic, 
that I had I had listened to that stuff before, but it's it didn't hit me on like an emotional level like it did kind of in my my late teens, I guess. And that was when I kind of started to feel a deeper emotional connection to that music. So I mean, there's so so many other people too, but it's it always to me it always kind of comes back to '60s era Miles and Coltrane. How old were you? Grant mentioned you might have been 16 when you recorded on his album. That sounds about right. Yeah, maybe 16 or 17. And now he recorded that. Did he record it in Denver? I'm, I'm trying to figure out the Portland yeah. to Denver uh, the, uh, relation and how you guys met. Because, again, I, dude, I love that album. I, I bought the chart oh, of Grant like years ago. Oh, cool, man. <laughs> yeah, I was, just, <laughs> nice. so, I was just like I was working a full time job and I was never had any time. I'm like, I'm just going to reach out and see if he's got charts for these songs, you know, and yeah, I just <laughs> love it. I'm, I'm, it's, it's always fun going back and listening to that record. And it's always cool to hear people. A lot of people seem to be really into it. And, you know, oftentimes I, I have a hard time listening to my playing in the past. <laughs> and like, I kind of, I honestly feel that way about my solo record prelude. I can't really listen to it on a personal level because um, of my own playing, but but uh, Grant's Grant's record, I feel like uh, it's it's always really fun to revisit it, and I just um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely uh, proud of of being a part of that. But yeah, I guess how how did I meet Grant? I guess you know it was also at the Mandolin Symposium actually that the first year I went, which was 2005. I met I met so many folks who I who have been you know, playing with ever since. So Grant, um, I also met Dominic Leslie that week and Sarah Jarose and Eric Robertson and, uh, Jared Walker and a whole bunch of folks. And I remember really hitting, hitting it off with Grant that week. It blows my mind. The success that the, the crew that went to that, to some of them symposiums has found it's, it's so great. It was it was a lot of fun. Definitely, it would always be kind of a, a highlight of my of my year for sure. So you meet Grant at that, and he just remembered you're just this killer fiddle player, and he's going to be recording an album, and he wants you on it. Yeah, we we ended up we kind of stayed in touch, and um, and then we would overlap at other camps and festivals. Well, another another camp that was kind of happening around the same time was something that. Uh, uh, Tashina and Tristan Claridge were kind of curating in collaboration with my parents, actually. And uh, in retrospect, I can't believe my parents agreed to this, but we actually did. They hosted a house camp at our house that we did for probably four years in a row, um, right around that same time. And basically, my parents agreed to host it. Um, and uh, Tashina and Tristan were kind of the artistic directors and they would hire the teachers and there would, you know, be about 20 people staying at our house. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not a huge, you know, it's like a typical two story house. It was very packed. Um, but it was, that was another one of those, you know, experiences that really, uh, inspired me a lot. It was when I first met Billy Contreras and, uh, they had all sorts of great teachers there, but Grant was a part of that as well. And so I remember spending a lot more time with him, one of those weeks and uh yeah and then i would i would go out to colorado to play gigs with him and i think kind of around the same time we recorded i started going out to colorado more often and would hang with him and dominic and play around that area yeah that's a fertile music scene too (laughs) oh absolutely yeah and then i love I, i talked with mike marshall a little bit about this i've had him on here twice now and we oh, cool. and we talked a little bit about the um about the big trio.
like to a get involved in that process and then like it sounds like it might have been a bit of an intense process as well well with yeah <laughs> oh yeah for sure i mean in, intense in the best of ways you know it was just uh, such an incredible learning experience and um yeah obviously mike has you know been a hero of mine for a long time so that was really really exciting to get to be a part of i just have so many great memories of paul and i staying with mike at his his place in oakland and you know he's an incredible chef as you probably know yeah. as well so he's just cooking incredible food and working on music all day and he had a lot of these ideas for tunes and then we'd kind of work them up together and we spent a lot of time together like just at his house working up music and playing gigs around the bay area um and recording that record so that was i, I learned so much from that just you know from hanging with both paul and mike how was it that you and paul got chosen for the trio you know what? I think it actually started when uh, when Daryl, um, when back when Daryl was living in Portland, Oregon, he had a bike accident and broke his. I think it was his wrist, um, and yeah, which was a total bummer. And um, but I think he was he kind of had to take a break from playing for a little while, and they had a duo gig booked, and and just kind of at the last minute, Mike ended up calling Paul and I. You know, it takes it takes two to <laughs> fill fill the shoes of Daryl Anger, um, and that was uh, so we we got called to to kind of fill in for Daryl at the last minute, playing at this um, this really cool kind of like uh, internet conference type thing out on uh, Cape Cod. Um, that that was kind of this like private event where we were we were the, that we were the music for, and that was kind of how it started. We were just hanging out on. Cape Cod for a week, like playing sets throughout the day and like working up tunes. And at that point it was mostly playing like Mike and Daryl repertoire, um, which was really fun. Cause you know, I've listened to that stuff a lot and I love the duo records they've made together. so good that stuff i can always go back to it just you know it's like the best music is just keeps on giving and that's that's like the, their live their live duo record is one that that you know you can always get something new from um so anyways yeah that was it was really fun playing those those tunes like you know shoot the moon and hot nickels and stuff like that and and then and then i think it was you know in the next year or two that um he wanted to keep that project going and started writing music specifically for that group. Wow. That is so, how old were you at that point? Like when you did that gig filling in for Daryl? I guess probably 17, wow. 17 or 18, maybe. I think it was kind of, I remember it being right like maybe a year or so before I moved to Boston. And then how old were you when you did your debut album? Because you look like you're like 14 on the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the cover of that album. Yeah, that's a very, very unfortunate cover. <laughs> um, but it's, <laughs> um, that was right around the same time, actually. So we, we did it at the same studio with the same, enge same engineer, Dave Luke. Um, I can't remember. I guess the big trio record came first, um, but it was, it all kind of blends together for me because it was around the same time I was spending a lot of time in the Bay Area with Mike. And then Grant came in for that. It was basically like the big trio plus Grant um, for most of that record. So, did you graduate from Berkeley? Did you finish for, at Berkeley? Yeah, I got I, I got an artist diploma, so that was like a, a three year program essentially. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. And then, what do you? How do you decide what to do after that? Did you have a like? Was there already like a path laid out for you, or did you have to be like, all right, now how am I gonna use all this and? dominate the fiddle world <laughs> or violin world. I don't What do you, what do you prefer to call it? Cause you play, you know, multiple types of music. So. Man, I honestly, I use both terms and I don't really have a, you know, I'm not at least not aware of why I decide to use one or the other. It just kind of depends, but it's the same, you know, 
I, I like I like using both. OK, cool. Yeah. I just think fiddle all the time because I come from, you know, 90 percent of the people I interview are bluegrass. So it's just like it's like fiddle right. is ingrained. However, I do realize yeah. that you play more than just in bluegrass stuff. Do you? So <laughs> I don't want to No, I think I think, you know, I would consider myself a fiddle, a fiddler first and foremost. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> Get done at Berkeley. Um, yeah. So I guess at that time I was touring quite a bit with Sarah Droz and her, the trio she had, um, with me and Nat Smith. And that was, I think, uh, she was finishing school at the same time. So she was really trying to, um, go out on the road and, you know, promote the record that she put out around that time that I was a part of. So I think it was kind of just like, I didn't really have a whole lot of time to think about what was happening next. It was like, Oh, I guess we're just, you know, we're going to be out on the road for the next year or so, <laughs> um, which was great and a whole lot of fun and got to play a lot of really cool gigs. And, um, and then I also kind of around the same time, I knew that I wanted to move to New York just because that's, you know, I think I had always kind of wanted to. And, and a lot of folks who I knew in Boston had either already moved to New York or were planning on it. So, so I kind of knew that was my long-term goal, but then also was just busy on the road touring with Sarah a lot. Yeah. Now, and you re you recorded with Sarah as well. Yeah, yeah, on a few of her records. Is that stuff when you go in there with with someone like that? Is that it, does she have a lot of the parts? Are they written out, or do you get to go in there and kind of you know use your ideas and and help shape songs with something like that? You know, it it was pretty pretty flexible from what I remember. I mean, some of those the this um second two records that I was on, I'd already been touring in her band. So a lot of that stuff, you know, kind of developed naturally just playing on gigs. Um, but then I think that the first record I did was before I had played many shows with her, but yeah, I mean, I, from what I remember, it was very, very, a very open environment. And I kind of was able to just do what I would get. I would get some suggestions from her and, and from Gary Pachosa. Um, but overall, it seemed like I could kind of just do my thing and use my judgment. Yeah, so. I mean, they sound the, the, all those recordings sound really organic to me, you know. Oh, cool. Yeah. So yeah. it sounded like it was it was it didn't sound like, you know, you know, some Nashville albums is like, yeah, of course, it sounds exactly like this. It sounds like it's like a puzzle put together. <laughs> it's just like, right, right. Know, <laughs> here's a piece. That's what you play. But that those albums, they just sound just so, um, you know, I don't want to say spur of the moment, but they kind of give you that vibe of that's that happening in the studio is a cool feeling so yeah yeah um you also played with feely um on the live from here a bunch yeah what what is that like <laughs> i mean oh man I, that's i i find that sort of stuff when you have a week it's like saturday night live almost where it's like you have a week to make all the stuff that's going to happen happen <laughs> and none, yeah. of it, none of it sounds easy <laughs> you know you know it's all pretty complex sounding stuff so how how'd you get the call for that what was it like and i'd love to hear all i'd love to hear about it yeah well i guess i just i just heard from chris out of the blue asking if i wanted to to be in the house band for for a sh for one of the shows and i was you know that was maybe after, after a few months of him hosting what was then prairie home companion and um yeah, I was obviously just super psyched and honored that he thought of me and and just really excited to be a part of it. Um, and then, yeah, and then I kind of, over the next few years, ended up kind of being in, in rotation as one of the, the house band fiddle players. And it was it was always a wild ride, <laughs> that's for sure. And, and really, you know, I got to play with so many heroes and, and uh just like being a part of that whole process was, was really cool, really eye-opening. Um, definitely. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, I'm all, I already tend to procrastinate and I feel like, uh, that, that show kind of almost ingrained these habits even more because you have no choice, but to just cram at the last minute, you know, cause you, you only get, you only get the music a few days in advance. So would there be a lot of, a lot of late nights, sometimes almost all nighters, just kind of like figuring it all out and, I kind of, you know, gradually as I did this, the show more, got a little more comfortable in terms of like the process and how everything operates and getting more comfortable kind of just reading charts and not, I, the first few shows, I think I kind of tried to memorize everything, which wasn't the best idea. <laughs> I was just a little too idealistic about it. Um, <laughs> but then when I kind of settled into, into the flow a little more, um, I think I got 
felt a little more comfortable with it, but it was, it was always great. And I learned so much, you know, Chris is such an inspiring musician in so many ways and has such an incredible work ethic. And it was really, uh, really cool to kind of get to see his whole process with that. Uh, how, how often did you rehearse like for when, for a Saturday, like, did you guys have a lot of rehearsals prior to that or long rehearsals it, prior to that? It would just be one, one long rehearsal, most of the day on Friday wow. and then Saturday starting early in the morning, pretty much leading, leading up to the show. And that was it. Holy cow. That's incredible. <laughs> um, but you know, he would, he would start sending around ideas like earlier on in the week. Typically. Oh, okay. So you kind of had a little bit of, you know, that's, yeah. So we would often get, you know, often have stuff to look at, but sometimes, especially with his songs of the week, um, sometimes we wouldn't really get it till like <laughs> till Friday morning. So that was always, <laughs> that was always exciting. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, you, uh, did you do a lot of sight reading on that gig as well? Um, I mean, not like sight reading on the actual like broadcast, but I'm definitely, I, I do feel like my time at Berkeley really helped with my reading and that, it, that definitely, um, came in handy on the live from here gig for sure. Cause there was, a, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff like that that just made it a little less stressful um just you know feeling comfortable with reading stuff yeah that's cool yeah i just remember seeing some of the videos i'm like you know like Thiele looks like he has a music stand with you know reams of paper oh yeah <laughs> just just i don't know how place. he i don't know how he does it like and you know and he'd only be looking at the music like of from what I could tell, a very small portion of the time. Wow. And, you know, and then he's hosting the show on top of all the music. He's it's crazy. I, I have no idea how he does. <laughs> That's amazing, man. What a cool experience. And you've you've also played with Doug some, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. That was um, he's I met I met Doug very early on, like at a, actually at Wintergrass, this really great bluegrass festival in, in Washington. Um, and he's actually one of, one of the main reasons as, as along with like meeting a lot of those folks I mentioned earlier, who are kind of my, my, in my age group, um, meeting David was another really big moment for me early on that I feel like led to a lot of, a lot of other opportunities. Um, I met him. Yeah. I was jamming with my dad in the lobby at Wintergrass and David just happened to walk by and ended up listening and seemed to dig it and, and we, and I met him there and got his contact info, and then he in, ended up inviting me to go to Bluegrass at the Beach that following summer, which was another another um, camp that used to happen out in Oregon. And he he put together this band called Pupville <laughs> that was uh, with uh, his son Sam, who was another old dear friend of mine, and uh, Jake on mandolin, and uh, his guitar player Ian Fleming, and uh, Frankie Nagel on banjo and, and singing. So that was really inspiring and he he kind of coached us throughout the week and we worked up a set of music that we played at the end of the week and um and then after that i just kind of you know he he called me to play a few gigs with him i got to do some stuff with the with his bluegrass band and a few gigs with with the sextet and um and yeah it's been an absolute honor getting to know him and play music with him he is he's such a such a hero he just seems to be really generous and it's always cool to see like how how he always is really inclusive of you know of younger musicians and um you know i think he's had a big impact on a lot of people for that reason um since you played with like i would love to just mention each one of these guys and give if you would give me like an idea of what you think of their mandolin playing or what you think of when you think of their mandolin playing so starting with mike marshall wow man well he's he's such a he's such a groove meister, you know, <laughs> and I, I love, well, so many elements of his music. I love, I love his composing and how he writes tunes. Um, but one thing I've, one of my favorite elements of, of just his, his music and how he plays mandolin specifically is just how he plays rhythm. Um, I feel like he has a very unique way of playing time and something that, yeah, very unique and, I don't really hear any other mandolin player play rhythm the way he does. I think maybe it's influenced a lot by a guitar too. He uses, he seems to use a lot more sustain sometimes. Um, and just like a very like open and elastic sensibility. And I, I, you know, I think probably a lot of that comes from 
playing mandolin in the Grisman Quintet, kind <laughs> sure. of being like, you know, being the drummer almost in that band. And that, that, you know, the Grisman Quintet is such, such a cool history of string band rhythm playing and just all of the possibilities that you can get from those instruments rhythmically. Um, so I, yeah, I feel like Mike just has, a very, he has a very unique and powerful sense of time and groove. And that's always been really, really inspiring. Sure. I love when he was on here, it was, um, might've been before we even started recording and we were just talking about a weird piece of music. He's like, Oh, it's really easy. If you just break it down, it's like one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. I'm like, Oh yeah. my God. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Real easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Piece of cake. <laughs> right. Oh, that's great. Um, how about Thiele? Man. Um, well, obviously, I mean, so many, so many things. Um, he's obviously like changed the, uh, the standards for what, what's possible on the instrument. And, uh, and I, I love his mandolin playing. I, I feel like just as much as his mandolin playing though, I've been, um, inspired by kind of just his whole aesthetic with music and how he writes and arranges and orchestrates, um, yeah, I feel like that's that's to me just as inspiring as his mandolin playing. Um, it's just kind of like, yeah, his whole work ethic and how just how much um, care he puts into like the craft and like how he arranges music and composes music and how open minded he is to really checking out all all sorts of different styles of music, totally unrelated to the mandolin, you know. Yeah, I think that's super inspiring as well, you know, when he's. You know, when he was putting songs by like the white stripes and the strokes on yeah, albums, yeah. you know, and, and but making it kind of, you know, this his style of music. I'm like, man, this is I love the way this right, guy thinks. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And how about the dog? Man, I mean, <laughs> so much to say. I mean, tone and time is what I always kind of come back to with him. <laughs> There's really no one else who pulls a sound like that out of the mandolin. And he's not afraid to embrace sustain on the mandolin, which is not something <laughs> you hear a lot on that instrument. But the way he can really just, you know, milk one note and let it ring out. And I feel like especially um, more recently, has, you know, it's always cool to see how players like him evolve over time. And he's always, I feel like he's always playing in new ways. And recently he just seems to be really embracing those that kind of more sustained like approach. And I remember him talking about Ben Webster being a, re a really big influence on him and his phrasing. And um, that's something that I always find kind of interesting to, to think about when I hear him play. I feel like he has definitely quite a, there's a huge jazz influence on his, on how he just phrases melodies. And I love just the way he'll play a simple lyrical melody without anything unnecessary, you know, but just in such a soulful um, way that's that's always really powerful to me and, and also when just when he plays bluegrass that he's one of my favorite bluegrass mandolin players even though he doesn't always play bluegrass i always love hearing him in that setting like you know like you mentioned hearing him with dell is always incredible because you can just tell he he knows that language in such a deep way um but then he obviously he does his own thing with it and that's the you know to me that's always the goal is like you you know, you learn from a tradition or a language and then you kind of find your own way of relating to it. And he's kind of the ultimate example of that to me. Yeah, man, his double stops sound like he's like, where are they? These, they're never ending. Oh, man. He finds them everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's so killer. Absolutely. And so effortless sounding. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. He makes it sound so easy that you go to learn it and you're like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. What is oh, wrong totally. with me? Yeah. It's, there's, there's nothing yeah, wrong with you. He's that. incredible. <laughs> Totally, man. And all just, I mean, his rhythm playing too, obviously is so deep. And I, I mean, all like all of these folks we're talking about, like none of them conform to like what's thought of as like, you know, the role of a mandolin. And that's, you know, that's one thing that I always find interesting is sometimes, you know, people think, well, the mandolin's always supposed to chop in a bluegrass band. That's kind of, you know, the narrative that we all hear. But when you actually look at like all of our favorite mandolin players, like even Sam Bush, who we think of as like the king of the chop, it's like he doesn't always chop. Like the chopping happens for a musical reason, but it's not like just necessarily a default. And, you know, you listen to Monroe and he's not sometimes he's strumming more like open and like a guitar. And then sometimes he'll chop when the music needs that kind of extra push. But I always like listen. I could just listen to 
dog play rhythm all day, you know, because it's always it's just as improvisatory as his soloing while also being incredibly supportive. And it's always spontaneous and full of surprises. And that's that's what it's what it's all about for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when when I try to transcribe some of his tunes, it's always a challenge because the rhythm is never it's like never the same. It's not just like. That's one, right. four, five, and he's just going to chop, you know, it's like, oh, geez, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, he's, this is different voicing. I love it. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's totally. It's so cool. It's like he's always thinking. Or I shouldn't even say thinking. I think it's, I think it's just always happening. He's always listening, I guess would be a better way to put it. For sure, yeah. Now, you also play mandolin and a bit, and, and I would love to know some things um, that you do on fiddle that you think maybe some people who play mandolin might not think about. Or, um, or maybe some things that you have that you just you think really would that would help a mandolin player out, or have helped you with mandolin. Hmm, man, it's but you know what? I actually more often I feel like I find myself thinking the other way around, just thinking about how mandolin has um, influenced my fiddle playing, and it's it's something I always encourage like my fiddle students to do is to mess around on mandolin. Um, so. I actually haven't thought about it too much the other way around. I'm sure it, I'm sure my fiddle playing does influence how I play mandolin, but I'm not exactly sure how, how actually come to think of it. Yeah. What about the other way around then? Um, you know, when, when yeah. yeah, how, how would that, well, work? I feel, I mean, especially just in terms of left hand fingerboard stuff, um, messing around on mandolin has always, you know, even if obviously the right hand technique and all that is a whole other ball game. And that's something I'd, you know, haven't worked on a whole lot. It's such a deep dive, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, um, for, for left-hand stuff, just seeing everything laid out on the fretboard like that, I think really helps make sense of shapes and patterns and chords and how, you know, how you can transpose and move things around through different keys. I think a lot of shapes that maybe I would stumble upon on fiddle, I'll kind of like see more clearly on mandolin and then that will help me kind of just internalize it more and kind of make sense of it a little more, I guess. Um, and then also just, you know, being playing a more rhythmic role in, in an ensemble, like, you know, on violin, often fiddle players aren't held as accountable to carry the groove, at least when they're not, you know, playing the melody. Um, so I think it's, for me, it's always a lot of fun just to like be a little bit more, more part of the, the kind of percussive rhythmic, elements going on and just you know by nature of playing a pick and subdividing in that way with the right hand i feel like that has also helped inform how i use the bow in terms of just like playing time and grooving and stuff well you play with some people with great groove too <laughs> that's got <laughs> to help you out you know wear into you a little bit too hearing things like that oh totally time. yeah <laughs> and um who are some fiddle players that you think more mandolin players should listen to Ooh, i mean it's hard to generalize because I'm sure I know a lot of, you know, my good friends who are mandolin players listen to all of the fiddle players I would probably suggest. But, um, I mean, yeah, all, I mean, Daryl Anger is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, Vassar Clemens, Stuart Duncan, Billy Contreras, Mark O'Connor. Um, yeah, so many, I mean, more on the jazz side of things. I love stuff. Smith, and uh, Eddie South, Johnny Gimble, like I mentioned, some of the more like uh, like straight ahead textile fiddle players, like Terry Morris, and Benny Benny Thomason, people like that. There's so many <laughs> I, I could go on and on. <laughs> when you um when you're working out different pieces, um or you know transcribing things or just just working on stuff, like how do you approach that? As far as like let's say you hear a solo or a lick that you want to learn, do you have like a set way you go about you know sitting down and and figuring that sort of stuff out? Um, not totally. It kind of depends. Like, um, I might go about it in a few different ways, but generally I'll try to learn it by ear first and maybe end up writing it down, um, kind of secondary, or maybe I won't write write it down at all. I'll just kind of learn it by ear and maybe record myself playing it to kind of document it. But I think the challenge with transcribing is like, once you learn the notes, then like figuring out how to actually like interpret that and have it you know, internalized in your own playing. Cause that's kind of the whole point is learning licks and solos. Right. So that's always, you know, that's the challenge sometimes. And sometimes I'm not totally sure if it's actually sinking into my playing or not, but 
I think you kind of just have to have faith in your process at the end of the day and hope that it might even, even if it's way down the road, it might sink into your playing. And I think it's, you know, it's about not, it's not about like figuring out when you can like insert this cool, like Vassar Clemens lick, you know, it's more about like getting to me. I think it's, you know, digging a little deeper into what's going on musically and like why that musical moment is interesting. And instead of just like, you know, verbatim repeating a lick, maybe like looking at what's going on conceptually and how that could maybe influence your own ideas. So I guess that's something I, regardless of like the process I go about for learning it, I'm always trying to kind of think in those terms and not just like, Oh, I, I'm going to use this lick when I hit this specific chord, you know? Yeah, man, I really love that you answer that, how, how you're going to internalize it and kind of make it your own. That's great. You know, because I think so many people are into like, oh, I got to play this. I got to sound like Sam on this lick. Nah, man, learn that Sam lick and throw it into your stuff. And then it's it becomes it becomes your lick, you know? Exactly. And that's, you know, when we think of all of our favorite musicians, like I feel like that's that's what they do. They they're they sound like themselves and obviously they've all checked out people who have come before them but you know it's still sam bush at the end of the day and you know you know within a you know within a few notes that it's sam bush and that's kind of to me one of the the ultimate goals i think as a instrumentalist or as an improviser so this is this is great i just got a couple more questions for you um god i really appreciate you taking the time today to do this man this has been a really great conversation oh my pleasure man thanks thanks for having me on the show yeah Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first question is, if you had 10 minutes today to work on something, what is something that you would work on? Oh, man, if it was just 10 minutes, I'd probably I'd probably pick a tune to play pretty much for that whole time nonstop. Um, I, it would either be that or maybe just playing just playing long bows, long tones, like with a drone. One of the, maybe one, one of those, one of those two, <laughs> probably. Do you have a favorite tune to play? Like, or just, is there one that you just like your music store tune? You know, not really. <laughs> it kind of, I go through phases with it. Um, and it, different tunes kind of come in and out of rotation like that. And it, and it just depends. But I think, especially in this last year with the pandemic and not being able to play with folks as much, I've found myself having to make a lot more effort to kind of, just like play a tune solo and not, you know, it, it's, it is a certain type of practice, but not think of it as practice in the sense that I'm going to like stop and fix something. Um, you know, that's valuable too, obviously, but what's easy to lose track of if you're only playing on your own for a year <laughs> more or less is, you know, kind of just like that, you know, you, when, you know, when you're playing in front of an audience or playing with other people, they're holding you accountable and you're not going to be able to go back and fix something. And that's like such a valuable <laughs> lesson and like muscle to always be developing. Um, so I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll try to do that sometimes on my own. It's just like, you know, I'm going to play, maybe set the timer for like 10 minutes or whatever. And I'm just going to play a tune that whole time and try to keep it interesting musically. But even if I mess up or make a, you know, whatever, like it would be a conventional mistake, I'll try to just kind of power through and either make something out of it but no matter what like not stop and lose the form of the tune and, and keep things going as if i were playing in front of someone you know and um are we are we going to see another alex hargraves album you know at, at some point it's uh yeah I'm, I'm always thinking about what that would be and at some point I, i'm just gonna have to do i'm just gonna have to do it but um you know honestly i don't have a, a very clear concept of what that would be at this point but um yeah, it'll it'll definitely happen at some point. Hopefully, sooner than later. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And now it is Mandolin's a beer podcast. So do you do you drink beer? Number one, I do. Yes. Okay, good. I should <laughs> ask that. I usually ask that by the way before we start a podcast. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm like, oh man. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So do you have a favorite beer? Well, being from the Northwest, I I can't help but love a good IPA, and uh, that's that's always kind of you know tastes like home. <laughs> Um, and actually, uh, uh, in, in New York here, uh, my, my roommate, uh, Miles Sloniker, who's a great bass player, he's actually been getting into home brewing over, over the course of the pandemic. So I've been shadowing him a little bit during that process and we're working on a, uh, Oregon style, Oregon kind of IPA. Get out of here. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, man. That's awesome. 
But, oh, wow, uh, that's very cool. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I like other types of beer too, but, but that always seems to be what I come back to. Well, dude, congratulations on this great new release. Um, Thank you. I'm recommending it to everyone. I love it. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Again, you, you've been, in the, uh, been playing on some of all, all my favorite albums, you know, or a bunch of my favorite albums. I should say all my favorite oh, albums. But you. yeah, a lot of my favorite albums, and you're on there. And I, I just really appreciate it. I love your playing, and, and I appreciate you doing this, man. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. All right. Thanks so much to Alex for doing the podcast. Don't forget Bandcamp Friday this week. So go to Bandcamp and pick up an album or two or three from your favorite musician. They get all the dough. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.